Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Associate Pastor Reverend Dave Kiefer. Uh, Each Thanksgiving, we're reminded of the importance of gratitude. Uh, We come to recognize that that grumbling makes even the most attractive among us quite ugly over time. And few people are more miserable than malcontents. Try to appease a complainer, and you soon discover how exhausting and counterproductive it can be. But steal away for a few moments with a grateful person, and you will renew your hope and your strength. Now, even if we recognize the benefits of having hearts filled with gratitude or an attitude of gratitude, we also understand that life's troubles make thanksgiving a difficult work. And Ecclesiastes captures the situation perfectly. The preacher understands the dilemma for those who seek contentment under the sun. He studies every trouble, poverty, ignorance, injustice, innocent suffering. He tests every blessing, pleasure, work, wisdom. And after an exhausted study of life under the sun, he writes a book about it. And the word he chooses to summarize his findings is hevel. Repeat after me, hevel. There you go. And that means a vapor or mist, a mist. Meaning life is, well, it's not just elusive, it's frustratingly elusive. It's like a mist. Life is meaningless the preacher says, all is vanity. And like an abstract in a scientific paper, the preacher who wrote Ecclesiastes states his findings at the top. It says, hevel, hevel, all is hevel. All things are meaningless and weary. So weary that man cannot speak of it, he says in verse 8 of chapter 1. And in verse 14 of chapter 1, he says, I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, it is hevel a striving after the wind. Now, I know what you're thinking. Gee, Dave, happy Thanksgiving to you too. (laughs) How about something a little more uplifting maybe? Why choose Ecclesiastes for a Thanksgiving service? And the reason is, is that the preacher in Ecclesiastes can really help us maintain thankful hearts whatever our life situation For some of us tonight, life is good. The idea of gathering together with friends and loved ones tomorrow is exciting. And the preacher would say, enjoy this season when Thanksgiving is easy, for it is a blessing. But for others of us, life has grown stale. Success, pleasure, maybe reputation, all these things have failed to live up to the hype and they've fallen short of the expectation. And gratitude now feels more like an obligation than a delight. And for others among us, life has turned downright rotten. 
The pain of trials, suffering, and heartbreak frustrate you, confuse you, and leave you wondering how you can ever truly recover joy and gratitude like you once had. But no matter your life situation, the preacher of Ecclesiastes can help you find joy in the hand that you have been dealt. Whether you're currently holding many aces or you're all out of aces or your hand is bust. Before we dig in, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to come together and to read your word and to take counsel from it. And we pray that you would renew our hearts and minds, that you would refresh our vision with your goodness and your character, and that we would see that not only are you good, but that you are so good you can even work through hard things, through difficult things to accomplish the best things in life. We know you did that in the cross, and we know you can do that in our life, and we rejoice and praise you for it. Be with us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you look at your your bulletin, you'll see that tonight I'm going to be sort of reading a spattering of verses uh, from chapters 3, 5, and 9 of Ecclesiastes. But the preacher's main point is captured in Ecclesiastes 2, verses 24 through uh, through 25, which is quoted right there in your worship guide, and I'll read read it now. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or have any enjoyment? Notice the superlative there. There is nothing better. In other words, after all the searching, after all his investigation and study, when all is said and done regarding life under the sun, enjoying ordinary pleasures like food and drink is as good as it gets. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, really? That's as good as it gets? And the, the pessimists among us now are smirking, saying, see, I told you so. And the optimists, I know you're tempted to tune out. You think you should have stayed home and watched the 700 Club. Maybe you prefer Joel Osteen over the preacher of Ecclesiastes. But as you discover by, by reading Ecclesiastes, the preacher is not a naive optimist nor a hopeless cynic. He's just someone who's lived a lot of life. He's seen it all. And his grief in life is real, but he is not despairing, and his hope is secure. It's just not naive. He is a wise king. He's the son of David. And so let's, you know, keep our knee-jerk reactions in check and listen to what he teaches us. And three things about the preacher of Ecclesiastes will guide us as we read these various verses. First, his approach. Second, his testimony. And lastly, his name. Let's pick up in chapter 5, starting at verse 12. I'm going to read through verse 17. Ecclesiastes 5, 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go away again. 
naked as he came, and he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. And this also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness with much vexation and sickness and anger. Here we see the preacher's approach. The preacher starts his sermon not by focusing on our common faith or our common hope, but by focusing on our common humanity and what frustrates us. And he calls out all the grievous evils that he found under the sun. And notice, under the sun, no one is spared the grief of heaven. In his study of humanity, he bears witnesses, he bears witness in chapter 5 that the rich and poor alike suffer. Verse, tw- verse 12, the rich's stomach, the stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Verse 13, for, for riches were kept to his own hurt. Verse 14, and they were lost by bad ventures. Verse 15, he, he was born naked and he departs with nothing for his toil. In verse 17, moreover, all his days are filled with darkness and vexation and sickness. It, and, and this isn't just the rich that commonly have the grief of Hevel. Throughout the rest of Ecclesiastes, the preacher observes similar things about the wise and the righteous and the self-indulgent and the hard worker, whether you're wise or foolish, righteous or wicked, self-indulgent or sacrificial, hardworking or lazy, privileged or oppressed, everyone suffers heaven. Everyone, even those holding all the aces. Life under the sun is like chasing the wind. Just when you think you've obtained what you desire, it escapes your grasp. You think, well, so what? What are the implications of this? Well, the preacher warns us that the good things of life can never satisfy. And he would know, for this preacher was a king, and he had the ability to obtain anything that he desired. He had wisdom and wealth and pleasure and delights of completing grand projects. He had it all, and at the end he said it is heaven. And in verse uh, 10 and 11 of chapter 2, this is what he writes, "'Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them.'" I kept my heart from no pleasure. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and behold, all was vanity, striving after the wind. And so it is with us and our friends and our spouses and our children and our experience at work and our experience with sex and wealth. And whatever our place is in this world, we will experience heaven. Nothing can satisfy our souls or provide the benefits that only God can give. And this is why he is so insistent on the point. The preacher stands before humanity, pointing out our common frustrations, the rot and rust of life's best things, the brevity of life's pleasures along with its diminishing returns, and how death shows no mercy to rich, wise, diligent, or beautiful. And he does it in order to prepare the hearts of his readers to make sense of his redemptive testimony. And this leads to our second point, his testimony. And his testimony is that your lot is God's gift, and it's useful for knowing God and enjoying God. Continue in chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which one 
toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life. Why? Because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Notice that the preacher holds up the example of the truly blessed. And who are they? First, they're those who accept the finiteness of all good things. Notice verse 18. Good and fitting it is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which one toils under the sun, the few days of life that he has. See, remembering the finiteness of everything provides a couple useful resources. First, it's a check on our envy, right? It doesn't matter, right? Your neighbor's hand and how well they've been dealt the cards because ultimately they'll die and lose everything. It doesn't matter how wise you are. You cannot keep bad things from happening. It doesn't matter your beauty or wealth for it will wrinkle, rust, or rot. But just because the hand you hold cannot save you or ultimately satisfy you, it doesn't mean that you can't enjoy, enjoy the hand you're dealt and learn to play the, the game of life well. See, down, downplaying the finiteness of everything is like confusing an orange with a baseball. Using an orange for a baseball doesn't dismiss the value of the orange, but it makes for a disappointing baseball game. An orange cannot provide the thrill of a grand slam, but it makes breakfast much more tasty. And if you want to enjoy the sweetness of an orange, we must use it as God intends. And that is what the preacher is saying here. The preacher says, enjoy the gifts as God intends it, but don't try to suck life out of it as a God replacement, as your ultimate satisfaction. See, the preacher never commends cynicism about the limitations of his gift. Instead, he urges you to see how life's limitations and frustrations are meant to direct our attention beyond the good things we enjoy to the one who created and sustains all good things, to the one who gives all good things. And his testimony has a second thing, that the blessed are not only those who accept the finiteness of all things, but they also see the givenness of all things. Verse 19, those who have the power to enjoy what they have been given and who accept their lot in life, for this is the gift of God. He's speaking not just of the objective reality of the gift, but he's also speaking about the subjective experience of, of joyfully receiving and accepting this lot and rejoicing in your toil. And in verse 20, he shows the result when people choose to do this. The man who does this doesn't remember his days. The time literally flies by because God keeps him occupied with joy. See, those who see the givenness of all things are blessed They see food and drink and work. All are gifts from God, not earned or deserved. They are given. In fact, every gift is given, even the ability to process the food and drink, to enjoy it, even the ability to do work. 
Healthy, functional bodies are a gift. Oxygen to sustain them is a gift. Everything from the hand of the Lord is a gift from God. Apart from Him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment, the preacher says. So as we acknowledge the givenness of all things, we begin to recover the presence of God in the ordinary, and the preacher directs our hearts away from a sense of entitlement and the inevitable discontent and pride that such a sense of entitlement produces. And he reorients us to taste the sweetness of ordinary pleasures as we learn to see them as unearned gifts. Zach Eswine says it this way, The Western idea that we should seize the day, if they understood what the preacher was saying, would change from get out there and insert yourself, assert yourself and make it happen to something more like open your hands, pay attention to what God is giving and what he is not. Receive with humility what he gives as enough and thankfully pursue this and enjoy this. So what does this mean? It means your lot in life is God's gift to you. The hand you're dealt is God's gift to you. And from the beginning, even in the Garden of Eden, this is how it was intended to be. Eswine clarifies that, that every human being was given four things. A place to be, something to do, a need for sustenance, and people to share it with. And God originates these gifts and is present with these gifts. And John Calvin writes, By thanksgiving we duly celebrate God's kindness toward us, ascribing to his liberality every blessing that enters our lot. Yes, suffering exists. Yes, yes, death exists. But so does orange juice and donuts and pumpkin pie. And the preacher reiterates his point again in Ecclesiastes 3, verses 10 through 14. He says this in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 10. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And I perceive that there is nothing better than for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. And also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. And I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Ever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. See, we are created to be busy with God's gift. And his creation is overflowing with so many gifts. And God has made everything beautiful in its time. And he puts, but he puts, eternity into our hearts so that we cannot be satisfied with finite things. Instead, we need to be, some, we need to be satisfied with something infinite. And so we need a relationship with the infinite one. And that is what we yearn for. And he says, as we learn to yearn for him, to fear God and to enjoy him, we learn to enjoy his gifts for all that they're worth. So how does this apply? What type of person do you want to be? Do you want to be happy or do you want to be miserable? 
The preacher says there's two types of people under the sun. The first is learning to see each card in his deck, each aspect of that lot that God has given him as a gift that indicates God's goodness and reveals his holy character. And God visits him in his ordinary toil and keeps him occupied with joy, as Ephesians, as Ecclesiastes 5.20 says. But the second person has his lot, but, but does not see God in it. He uses his lot, and he plays his hand, but he derives no sense of God. He has no empowerment to enjoy it as God intended, as a connection to him. And it, so it's a godless experience that, that's doubly sad. And Eswine describes it this way. He says, not only is this second person's life under the sun fraught with misery, worth wisely hating in a fallen world, but this person also derives no sense of God or no joy from the ordinary gifts of his marriage, his food, his work, his dwelling place, or his possessions. So what kind of person do you want to be? Eternally happy by seeing how your lot is a gift from God or eternally frustrated by divorcing your lot from him, having no sense of his goodness or of his abiding presence? See, everyone must play the cards that we've been dealt. How will you play them? If you have nihilistic tendencies, you may be tempted to despair and declare, every hand I've been given is a losing hand, and it's useless. If you have cynical tendencies, you may be tempted to express your frustration slightly differently. Since you know every hand is a loser, You see the irrelevance of those who play to win. But hey, at least you can enjoy beer and chips while the game lasts. But the preacher, while he agrees with both that under the sun all is meaningless, he maintains that because there is a God above the sun, meaning can be recovered. Not from anything we do under the sun, but because the one who created the sun has broken in and walked with us under the sun to redeem it. And if you have hedonistic tendencies, you may be tempted to simply distract yourself with with pleasure and say, let's eat and drink and play the game for tomorrow we die. And plenty of pleasures exist to get you through today and the next day and the next until you die. And the preacher agrees that God has given you many pleasures to enjoy, but warns you that nothing can cure the ache that you feel in your heart. Nothing can cure it but him. Any other pleasure will turn into a deadly addiction that leaves you in misery and bondage. But there's one more way that we might play the game. And if you're a Christian, you may have more noble tendencies. You may pay no attention to God's gifts, but believe the soul is all that matters. Or you may be tempted toward denial, saying things like, well, things aren't that bad. It's not that terrible, the hand that I hold. You might believe that tears and weeping and grieving is evidence of faithlessness. But the preacher disagrees, for he cries out with those who cry and reminds us that God weeps with us. And that all God's gifts are to be enjoyed and not neglected or despised or feared. And so the question remains, how can we find joy in the hand that we are dealt? 
And we can only find joy in the hand we're dealt by looking beyond the testimony of the preacher's experience, by looking to the one to which he points. And this leads to our third point, the preacher's name. The preacher in Ecclesiastes introduces himself as the son of David, king of Jerusalem. And most commentators believe that it's most likely Solomon, but no one's quite sure. Whoever may have been the original author who penned the book, the point is is that he points and foreshadows the promised son of David, the eternal king of Jerusalem, Jesus Christ, the wisest preacher. Jesus lives what the preacher of Ecclesiastes teaches. See, he, he knows the presence of God in every moment of life, and he trusts God, his heavenly Father, with his lot. And the only thing we know from his childhood was his comment, why are you looking for me? Didn't you need, know that I would be in my father's house? See, he was always practicing his father's presence and aware of it and reveling in it. And in each moment, he saw his circumstances in light of his father's will, whether it was breaking bread or fasting in the wilderness. And even in Gethsemane and on the cross, Jesus sought communion with the father. See, Jesus lived with the preacher of Ecclesiastes teaches to see his lot as a gift from his heavenly father. And he did it for those who haven't listened to God's word or recognized his presence. He did it for those who have closed off God in their cynicism. He did it for those who have vainly sought to replace God with hedonism. And on the cross, Jesus Christ took all such sins upon himself, including our godless attempts at happiness that prove vain and our cynical interpretation of what God is doing in our lives. And on the cross, Jesus secured reconciliation with God for us so that we can be confident. We can live moment by moment knowing that God is with us and for us, that his mercies are new every morning. In the ordinary stuff of life, in the small stuff, in the big stuff, we can know he will never leave us or forsake us until we see him face to face in glory. So two, two closing applications. First, do you believe this? And second, what difference does it make? Do you believe that Jesus lived what Ecclesiastes preaches? That he descended from heaven and endured life under the sun to prove that there is a God above the sun who is perfectly sympathetic in his love for you? Do you know that Jesus came as God in the flesh, that he endured Hevel? He died on a cross and rose again. And if you know that, it changes everything. See, without Jesus, everything remains Hevel. We are but a vapor. Life is nothing but chasing after the wind. But if you know Jesus, it changes everything. By looking at Jesus' sacrificial life and death on the cross, we begin to see that our lot... Whatever cards we are dealt is God's good gift to us, and we can trust it because we look at the love of God proven to us in the person of Jesus Christ who proved his love and his goodness and his character by doing whatever it takes to win us back to himself. But only if you see Jesus for who he is and trust him will you know what I mean. Consider it this way. Scenario one, a busy and distracted woman stood on the corner of a busy intersection 
when the man who loved her threw himself in front of a passing bus, declaring before he died, I love you. Those words would traumatize her the rest of her life. Why would he do such a foolish thing? See, when the words, I love you, are not aligned with reason or reality, it's disturbing, not comforting. At best, the sacrifice is unnecessary, and unfortunately, this is how many people view the gospel. And at worst, it's dangerous because it might encourage others to emulate such foolish, sacrificial living. But consider scenario two. A busy and distracted woman strayed into the midst of a busy intersection when the man who loved her pushed her out of the way of a passing bus declaring, I love you, before he died. See, those words would also traumatize her for the rest of her life. Why would he save such a fool as her? But notice when the words, I love you, are aligned to reality, it is transforming. The total sacrifice is the greatest example of love because it was absolutely necessary. Similarly, scenario one is is how the cynic and skeptic sees the gospel. It's like the rest of life. It's meaningless. It's vanity. But scenario two is the way the Christian views the gospel. The shadows of Havel may linger, but more is going on because God has entered history and he pushes us out of the way of destruction and he demonstrates his love to his people by rescuing them from sin and death. And he has proven his steadfast goodness and character. And if you believe this, What difference will it make in your life? Will it enable you to trust him with a hand that you were dealt when you look at it and say, meh? And to thank him and enjoy him through the ordinary stuff of life. And Ecclesiastes 9, verses 7 through 9 says it best. You'll be able to go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved of what you do. And you'll let your garments be always white, and you'll let not oil be lacking on your head, and you'll enjoy life with the wife you love all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Now, I know a few of you might have some deeper objections because you've been in a pit of despair, and you might say, Listen, it doesn't matter. We all die. You're right. We all die. I know. Go make a sandwich, drink some beer, broil some fish, the way the resurrected Jesus did to remind yourself that death does not have the last word. But injustice is everywhere, Dave. I know. So go ahead and take a bath. In verse 8, it says, Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Put on some cologne. Kiss your wife and kids. God hasn't quit. He's still at work. But nothing satisfies me, Dave. Everything's vanity. I know. Verse 9, enjoy life with your wife with whom you love all the days of your vain life. Go play a board game with your kids. Learn to make great love with your spouse. Bake a sheet of cookies and give them away to neighbors. As Corey Ten Boone, a Holocaust survivor, testified, God's goodness can even be found in the fleas that he sends us. And as Brother Lawrence discovered, God pursues us among the pots and pans 
of the kitchen. This is the preacher's word for us this evening. His approach is to remind us that everyone suffers Havel so that they might know their need for God. His testimony is your lot is God's gift to you, useful for knowing and enjoying him. And his name points to the promised son of David who came proving his love and believing in him makes all the difference in the world. Let us pray. Father, we have much for which to give thanks. And Father, I pray for any here who don't know you. Many come to church but don't necessarily know what it means to have a vibrant, real relationship with you. And I pray that you would draw them to yourself and grant them life with you. And I pray for any here that is stuck and overwhelmed with the brokenness of life, that you would restore their joy, that they would see how you have proven your faithfulness and your holy character is trustworthy, and so they might trust you when they don't understand the hand you have dealt them. And they will choose to give thanks for every little blessing you give them. And as they do, bless them, restore their joy, and renew it. And I pray for those as well who are living just delightfully charmed lives. Help them to recognize that this is just a foretaste of heaven and to return all praise to you. We pray all this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.